please turn to John chapter 20 in the scriptures this morning, John chapter 20. There is a certain period of Jesus' ministry on earth that just seems to be the one many Christians know the least about, and that period is the few weeks of his earthly ministry between the resurrection and the ascension. In other words, when it comes to his ministry, we tend to focus on his teaching to the disciples and to the crowds of people. We tend to focus on the miracles that he performed, and certainly we say a lot about his death on the cross to atone for sin and his resurrection from the dead. But we can easily overlook the vital ministry of Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. For about 40 days, Jesus was on earth in his glorified body, interacting with his followers, teaching, preparing them further for their future ministry. It was an eventful 40 days, an important 40 days of ministry. We saw the initial moments of this often overlooked period last time that we were studying together, John 20, in verses 11 through 18. There we found that Mary Magdalene returned to the garden tomb, grieving over the death of her master. And while she was there, the resurrected Jesus appeared to her. She did not recognize Jesus at first, but then Jesus called her by name. That one single word, Mary, as he had uttered it many times before, was enough to remove her doubt and her confusion and her sorrow. And once Mary realized that who Jesus was and that that this was the beginning of of an entirely new relationship with him, then the Lord sent her back to the apostles to deliver the good news that he was alive and as well the news of the new relationship that they too would now have with him. I'll go ahead and read verse 17 again from our last study together. Jesus says to Mary in verse 17, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, in the next passage, verses 19 through 23, we find more of this period of Jesus' earthly ministry and therefore more of what he said to his followers, which means that his words on the cross that we sometimes say are the last words of Jesus weren't really his last words words. He continued to speak between the resurrection and the ascension, and what he said and taught during that period was certainly vitally important. Now, it will take us a couple of Sundays to cover what is here, so today we are going to just look at verses 19 through 21. As we pointed out last time, when Jesus interacted with Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, it was Sunday morning, very early on Sunday morning. Now the scene shifts. Now it is the evening of that first resurrection Sunday. 
So today and next week, we're going to examine some features, several features of that scene, a scene that's taking place in a room in Jerusalem. Here's the first feature of this scene. Number one, we'll call it the surprising manifestation. The surprising manifestation. Verse 19. So it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. So after the crucifixion, the disciples got together, no doubt just trying to process all that had happened, starting with the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trials that took place after that, certainly his crucifixion, and then the shocking news, the shocking reports that the tomb was empty. They gathered together to process all that, and this gathering was on Sunday, which, by the way, means the disciples unknowingly started something. They began a practice that Christians still observe today, and that is meeting together on Sunday, the first day of the week. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is not even the Christian Sabbath. It is the resurrection day, what Scripture calls even the Lord's day. Now, there are some uh, parallel accounts to this outside of John. For example, in Luke's parallel account, uh, we find that this gathering included some others besides those we think of as the disciples, such as the men who had walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus when Jesus, you know, had uh, walked alongside them and explained more of the Old Testament to them. Eventually, they went back to Jerusalem. Here's what Luke's parallel account says in Luke 24, verse 33 and following. They, those men, returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. Verse 35 of Luke 24. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them uh, when they came to the breaking of the bread. So let's add all this up. We have this gathering. We have the disciples, without Judas, of course, he had killed himself, but also without one more of the disciples, and that was Thomas, at least at the beginning, as we'll see later in the chapter. Plus, there likely were some of the faithful women gathered there with them, and as I've already said, the two Emmaus Road disciples were there. So here they are, gathered together on Sunday evening, surely discussing all that they had witnessed. We don't know the precise location of this gathering. It is possible that it was in the same upper room in Jerusalem, that scene of the Last Supper. But wherever it was, those gathered there were scared. Verse uh, Verse 19 continues. And the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, just so you know, that term translated shut can also be translated locked. Basically, the disciples and these other followers, they were hiding out. And it says the reason is that they feared the Jews, which means in this case, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. This group knew just how possible it was that at any moment, the so-called temple police who had arrested Jesus could very well show up and try to put an end to this new movement once for all by arresting the rest of Jesus' followers. 
I suspect that every time they heard footsteps out on the street or a car drive by or something, that these people would look anxiously at the locked door. Well, while those who gathered in that room pondered what to do next, and while they dealt with their anxious hearts, suddenly something happened that was far more startling than the temple police showing up. The most surprising visitor of all arrived. 19 says, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Think about that. He entered a locked room without using some sort of portal, which is something impossible, obviously, for a normal human body to accomplish. But Jesus wasn't in a normal human body, not now. Jesus now possessed a gloriously resurrected body, so the locked doors meant nothing to him. Just as, you know, his body had passed through the grave clothes in the tomb, So his glorified body simply passed through the walls of that room. You could say it this way. Jesus simply materialized among the disciples, seemingly from their vantage point, out of thin air. And no doubt they were stunned. Once again, we can go to Luke's parallel account, and it says this, Luke 24, 37. They were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. In other words, a ghost. You know, that's not the only time they thought that, right? There was another time before Jesus was crucified. You remember when they were out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a a great wind came up? It says Jesus came to them walking on the water. What was their interpretation? Matthew 14, 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. That seems to be their default setting. Well, knowing they were still terrified, Jesus spoke to them to calm them. Verse 19 again, and he said to them, peace be with you. Now, that was a common or conventional uh, greeting used in the Greek-speaking world of that day. The, The Greek term for peace is the equivalent of that familiar and traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom. Peace, shalom, that's still used today. But shalom refers to something deeper than just a a superficial emotion or giddiness. It it represents something deep. It represents the blessing of a complete uh, inner health, you could say, or soul well-being. That's included then in the Greek equivalent of what Jesus said. And coming from Jesus' lips... I would imagine that his speaking a blessing of peace like this actually brought some initial relief and encouragement to the disciples. Because think about what their track record had been over the last even 24 hours. Since their last gathering, the disciples had failed miserably. Peter had publicly and openly denied the Lord. The others had forsaken him. So now Jesus shows up. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? He might reject them. He might subject, subject them to a bitter reprimand, but he didn't. I like the way A.W. Pink puts it. Well, might he have said, shame on you. But instead he says, peace be unto you. 
He would remove from their hearts all fear which his sudden and unannounced appearance might have occasioned. Having put away their sins, he could now remove their fears as well. Now if you think about it, these words, peace be with you, they are a compliment to something Jesus said on the cross. Remember what he said right before he died? It is finished. What was finished? Well, the work that was necessary to make salvation possible, to make it possible that there could be peace between God and his people, that work on the cross accomplished that. Peace with God for those who are Christ's sheep. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5 verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also states it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. He says, for he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. What keeps us separate from God, our sin, that wall has been broken down by Christ, by his sacrificial death in our place. So Jesus provides then this peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. God's wrath against our sins has been satisfied by Jesus' death. That satisfaction was finished. Now, in biblical terms, and we've studied this before, that satisfaction that Jesus offered is called propitiation. Jesus offered a propitiation on our behalf. That is, the cross exhausted the terror of God's holy anger toward our sins, his wrath toward our violations of his law. Christ propitiated the Father. Listen to Romans 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's a statement about every person that's ever born. doesn't matter who they are. Every individual born spiritually dead, lost, separated from the God who creates them. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. But being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. My point in rehearsing all that theology with you is this. It's because of Jesus' atoning death for our sins that we can know the most important peace that there is, and that is peace with God. But if a person has peace with God, then it's also possible for him, her, her, or her to know the peace of God. Shalom. Even in the most trying and difficult of life's circumstances. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke that blessing about peace, that shalom, that kind of peace the peace of God. And it's something he had promised to his disciples earlier in John 14. He says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives this peace I give to you. 
It is Jesus who offers an inner divine peace, a peace that comes from knowing that we are accepted by God because of his love and grace and mercy. That acceptance has been secured by the son's sacrifice on the cross. And it's literally God's own peace dwelling in our souls. Paul said this in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it was a surprising manifestation, Jesus just materializing in the room, and he speaks this blessing of peace to calm their hearts, but he didn't didn't just speak. He also did something more tangible that would help them. That leads us to the second feature of this scene. Number two, the clarifying demonstration. The clarifying demonstration Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Once again, we go to Luke 24, verse 39, and we find there that he also showed them his feet. So his hands, his feet, also his side. I mean, this fits with how Romans crucified people, at least when it comes to feet and hands. When the Romans crucified someone, they either tied that individual to the cross or many times nailed the victim to the cross. And if they were nailing someone to the cross, the nails would have been driven not through the palm of the hand, but through the wrist. The hands don't support the weight of the body. They need the bone structure there too. And just so you'll know, both the Hebrew word for hand and the Greek word for hand include the, the wrist and the forearm. So nails would be driven through the wrist and the cross. Nails were commonly driven through the feet. One spike through both feet. One foot would be placed above the other. And a spike driven through those feet. So yes, Jesus showed them those scars, his hands, his feet. But it's the fact that he showed them his side that is singularly significant. You see, there were lots of people crucified. They'd all have those scars, those wounds of the wrist the nails there and the nails in his feet, but only Jesus could show his side. Why? Well, it's what we saw back in John chapter 19, verse 34. It was common for the soldiers to break the legs of the crucified victim at some point so that they couldn't keep pushing up with their legs and taking the pressure off their lungs so they can get a breath. That would make them live longer and therefore suffer longer. But these experts in crucifixion, the Roman soldiers, took a look at Jesus. They knew They didn't need to break his leg, so they didn't. He was already dead. He died rather quickly, really, compared to most victims. But they did do one thing to prove it. They thrust a spear into his side, John 19, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And as we said before in our study of that, that just verified he was dead. They didn't do that to the other victims. So back to what Jesus said it all together. The point is this. These were all the parts of his body where the scars could be seen. And those wounds were literally his credentials. It was the demonstration of those credentials that made something very clear. This person who appeared before them in the room was none other than the crucified and risen Savior. By the way, something else interesting happened at this point that night. We go to Luke for that as well. He lets us know that Jesus ate something. 
just to confirm that his body was real. Luke 24, 41 through 43. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? I mean, here they're shocked. Do you have anything to eat? So it says in Luke 24, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. What was the result of all that? Verse 20 tells us the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. By confirming his identity, Jesus had turned their grief to joy just as he promised he would do. John 16, verse 20 and following, he told them, you'll grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Verse 22, you have grief now, but I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice. It happened in the room that night. Well, with the disciples at last convinced that he had indeed risen from the dead, the Lord proceeded then to give them some instructions. That's the third feature of this scene that we'll see today, which we'll call number three, the gospel commission. The surprising manifestation, the clarifying demonstration in the gospel commission. Now, in verse 21, Jesus repeated the initial greeting. It says, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. But then he added this, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is a commission to those followers to fulfill the very same mission that Jesus had been fulfilling on earth, and that's a gospel mission. And of course, this commission here is obviously a preview of what we are more familiar with, what we call the Great Commission that Jesus would later give to them in Galilee. I know we're familiar with it, but I'll read it again, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Such important words for us. Go therefore and fix this broken, fallen world that you live in. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention at all this morning. So I get in the zone, and I don't know if you're paying attention. It looks like I'm looking at you, but I'm not. It's, it's glossed over. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You see, the Great Commission, or even what Jesus said in the room that night, makes it evident again what our mission is here on earth. It's a mission that fits what Jesus has done for us. Because of his atoning death, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can know the peace of God and therefore be filled with joy and rejoicing, then it's out of that joy that we go into the world proclaiming the news that sinners can have that same peace with God. Now, it's true, of course, that doing good deeds and works of mercy can be connected to our witness. I mean, to verify our love and compassion for lost sinners is a good thing. Yet, the Gospels place their emphasis on this, proclaiming the message of Jesus and the salvation from sin that he offers. Now, Luke's version of the commission 
elaborates on this. Listen to Luke's fleshing this out a little more of what was said. Luke 24, 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There it is. That's our mission. We are commissioned to this mission, and it's a gospel mission. So Christ's perfect, obedient life that he lived... That was a work he accomplished. His death out of obedience to the Father on the cross, that was a work he accomplished. He was raised from the dead. These were all important works, but not our works. Our chief work is this, to proclaim all that he did and to proclaim the forgiveness that he gives to all who believe This is the message that Christians are to bear to the world on Christ's behalf. Paul put it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, that message is a stumbling block, and to everyone else, it's foolishness. But we don't change our message. How amazing is this? That God would make missionaries out of those self-centered sinners in that room like that night. I'll make it even more amazing that God would make missionaries out of self-centered sinners like us. Just one correction, though. Make sure that we're thinking rightly about our mission. The original disciples that night, and we today, we're not just simply replacing Jesus because he returned to the Father. Jesus is still ministering. And there's some grammar that helps us know that. That phrase, as the Father has sent me, that's in a tense called the perfect tense, which just means that that state of sentness is ongoing for Jesus. He is in heaven, but he's still ministering. Our mission continues that, and his ministry is effective in and through our ministry. So just to summarize it. We proclaim the gospel, lovingly offering a peace that the world has never known. It's peace with God through the forgiveness of sins achieved by Christ's death and the peace of God then that's also available as Christ's spirit lives in the hearts of all who believe. We're going to see the other two features of this scene next time, but I do want to leave us with what were for me several reminders for my own heart that flow out of this passage. So let me give them to you. There are six of these reminders, I think. Number one, it was a reminder, at least it was to me, to pray for persecuted Christians. How does it remind us of that? Well, it's those disciples in that room that night. They were fearful. They were anxious for good reason. There were those out to get them. They felt compelled to hide out behind closed doors. John Calvin, though, makes a comment about that gathering and and essentially says, cut them a little slack. Here's what John Calvin says. Though they were less courageous than they ought to have been, still they did not give way to their weakness 
but they gathered courage so as to remain together. The point is that this scene reminds us that there are many Christians like that still today. There are Christians all over this world living under the threat of government persecution or crowd persecution who continually to meet secretly like this. And I'm certain they have to battle their own fear and anxiety. My point is there's some form of this still going on and we need to remember them to always pray for them. Second reminder, it's a reminder of our future bodies. Do you know there is an organic connection between the body that Christ appeared in that night, his post-resurrection body, and the bodies that we're going to possess someday after Christ returns? Bodies like that. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, meaning even though we live here now, our citizenship is there in heaven, from which, from heaven also, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We like to say sometimes we, you know, we're going to receive new bodies. Technically, it's not new bodies that we receive. It's our old morty, mortal bodies are gloriously renewed somehow. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you find a lot of information on this. But here's starting in verse 42. Our body... Paul writes, it's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Then verse 53 says, this perishable, this body, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. I'm not saying we understand all the details of this, but the fact remains what is said in Scripture impacts our understanding of what our existence will be in heaven. I mean, just as Jesus materialized in a room, though there were walls and a locked door, in some way we too will have the ability to move about in a way that is totally different than what we know now. I was raised on some old, cheesy, terrible films, you know, of trying to depict heaven, and people were all walking around in white robes singing, and it was filmed in in Florida at uh, whatever that place was there, something gardens, but uh, to make it look like heaven, you know. But it's going to be different than we can imagine. We're going to have glorified bodies, and evidently, not only will we move around in a unique way, We'll be able to eat like he did. Perhaps perfect bacon. You know. Perfect fried catfish. Perfect pizza. Perfect barbecue. With Texas barbecue sauce. We don't know the particulars. I'm just saying, this reminded me, our existence in heaven in glorified bodies is an amazing thing to contemplate. Reminder number three, it's a reminder that joy is normal to our lives. Now that night in that room, all it took essentially was the presence of Jesus and for them to understand who it was to turn the grief 
and the sorrow of those disciples into joy, great joy. But really, that is Christ's intention for all his followers. Those who know that their sins are forgiven because of his cross, that have peace with God, those who know that Jesus is alive and ministering and sovereignly sovereignly ruling over all things, even now, should live with great joy in the Lord. The great hymn writer Charles Wesley saw Christ in the sense of the truth of his word that presents Christ. He saw Christ by faith, and that sent his heart soaring, which resulted in famous lyrics like these that we sing. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne, my surety, Christ, my guarantee stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Just a poetic way to capture what Christ has done for us and the fact that we can rest in the truth of that. And if we rest in the truth of that, we can shake off our guilty fears. Joy is to be a normal experience even in the midst of our sufferings. Paul writes about that in Romans 5, 3 to 5. We also exult in our tribulations, not exalt, but exult, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So what about trials and difficulties? We still lament. We still grieve. In fact, I've been learning more about this. It's important that we do lament. We should lament. We should grieve over truffering trouble and suffering, whether it's ours or someone else's or just the state of the world. We should never trivialize suffering. But even so, we can still learn to rejoice in Christ. Our suffering and our troubles do not have the power ultimately to prevent us from having joy. That's our choice, really. We can learn to rejoice in Christ regardless of what's going on, and that joy in the Lord, my point, is to be normal for us. Reminder number four, it's a reminder of our authority to preach. What gives Christians the right to fulfill the gospel mission? What gives us the right to go about proclaiming the gospel message, the Savior's message, and calling others to, and this is what we're calling him to, Reject your belief system, reject your beliefs, and come to Christ and trust in him. What gives us that authority? Well, the answer is right here in this text, among other texts. Christ has commissioned us to do that. He's commissioned his followers to proclaim the gospel message to the world, calling all people to faith in him, and that is the only authority we need. Jesus was sent by the Father, and now we are sent by Jesus to proclaim the gospel to the world, at least number five. It's a reminder of our need to be engaged with the world, to be engaged in the world. 
I mean, Jesus was sent into the world. And he has sent us into the world. So on one hand, we must keep ourselves from being conformed to the world, conformed to its mindsets and its behaviors. We're to be separated from it. But we're not to be so separated from it that we stand aloof from it or we're unconcerned about it or its troubles. No, you've heard this before. We're to be in the world, just not of it. Jesus said it this way in another passage, Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. 14, you are the light of the world. That's talking about our gospel influence, salt and light. Let your light shine before men. That's part of our marching orders, you see. Now, Christ identified with the world by his incarnation, taking on a miraculously, you know, human nature, human body. And as he identified with the world into which he came, he never entered into its sin. And likewise, we are to identify with the world in the sense of of engaging with it and being involved, but yet without participating in its sin. What a challenge. And in this engagement, we are to be mindful that we are to keep proclaiming Jesus as the only true hope of peace and joy. In a sense, we're offering life to a dying world. And the last one, reminder number six, just a reminder that there is only one way to know peace and joy. And that is through Jesus. It's through following him. So that begs the question then, do you know that? Do you know that peace? Do you have peace with God. If you have not looked in faith to Jesus, trusting in his work, his perfect life, and his finished work on the cross to die for sin, if you have not come to trust in that and nothing about yourself, then you really have no legitimate hope for peace with God. And therefore, you have no legitimate access to peace of God that he gives to his people through the ministry of his word and his spirit and in prayer. But this is the offer Jesus makes, and it's the one we proclaim, that you can have peace through faith in him. But that's the only way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even in this short passage, that we find the encouragement of who you are and what you've done for us through your Son, that our sin is paid for and that we can have peace with you and then live knowing the peace of God. We can rejoice in the Lord when we realize you're always present with us. You're never apart from us. Thank you for continuing to minister in and through us Lord, may we as your followers here today find that encouragement as we live each day. And may we remember what our mission is, that it hasn't changed, that is to offer Christ to a dying world. I pray for anyone here that has not come to that place of trusting in Christ alone, that you would open their hearts to believe and to come to him so that you might be merciful to them, a sinner, and save them. In Christ's name. Amen.